Blog Talk Radio. Hello and good afternoon, my friend. The Nepalese meditation bowl is chiming, centering your mind and delight on the art of the CEO. The show that brings you the wisest counsel and most fascinating people in the business community from all around our terrestrial orb. I am Bart Jackson, your Hieronymus Bosch of business. And my friend, it's what every entrepreneur dreams of, but frankly, fewer than 40% of biz launchers will pass their businesses on to the second generation. Why? Well, today, you are going to meet two exceptionally sharp and energetic business partners, Father Rick Newcomb, who founded Creator Syndications in 1987, and his son, Jack Newcomb, who stepped up. Uh, and has taken the palm after 22 years, coinciding his entrance, I might add, just with the ascendancy of media's digital revolution, changing uh, an entire uh, operations and maintaining an immense company growth all the while as all of media syndication industry goes flooding into unknown waters. It's a fascinating human and business drama packed with a whole raft of clever solutions for you to consider and emulate if you're sharp. So, whether you are a part of a family business seeking to build a better culture, or you're just intrigued by the world of media and business of sharing the top talents around the globe, lend a learning ear to the art of the CEO's feast of wisdom, all carefully cuisined to make your career thrive and your ventures flourish. Jack and Rick, I'm so glad you could break away from the sunny shores of uh, Southern California and the Golden State to make a virtual journey and join us today. Well, we're both excited to be here. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, um, Rick, I, I, I'm going to start off with with you, Rick. We'll we'll ask a, a lot of questions to both of you because, gosh, what a story you've got, Rick. In 1987, print media was king. I mean, Playboy magazine had made their bunny one of the three most recognized symbols on the planet. Uh, the Daily newspaper was one of the prime sources of current info. Uh, London Times and New York Times were on impeachable authorities. Even freelancers like myself were making admirable incomes. And here comes Rick Newcomb. And he says, hey, let's sell to all the top media kings. How did you get started on it, Rick? Well, there, there were at that time seven or eight major media companies in the United States, and they were all owned by large media conglomerates like the Hearst Corporation or the Chicago Tribune Company or Times Mirror. Uh, or Scripps Howard, and uh, the only independent syndicate that had been very successful uh, since 1933 was uh, what was called Universal Press Syndicate, and that was started in 1970. So for 17 years, there had not been an independent major syndicate founded, and that was a big challenge. Now, on the one hand, print, print was king in 87. Absolutely, you're right, and newspapers Everybody was selling them for a premium. On the other hand, it was perceived to be by Wall Street to be a mature industry. And I was told, well, it's going to be hard to raise money in a a mature industry. You need a growing industry, (laughs) not. And that was that was the challenge I faced. So but anyway, I went out and raised the money. I remember meeting with some some guys who were good at this and they helped me and they got a percentage of what we raised. And but when we were doing the the pro forma, which means like the projected uh, five-year plan and so on, 
um, no. at one point I said, okay, well, I guess I need to raise a million dollars. And one of them said, okay, great. We're, we're going for 2 million. We've got to double it. Whatever the entrepreneur <laughs> says, you have to double it because they always uh, cut corners. And it turned out we burned through that first million. And I would have been in big trouble if I hadn't had that person. His name was Alan Feinberg. I feel very indebted Rick, to, for that wisdom. Yeah, I just want yes. to ask you, so since you double everything, how many drinks do you have a week? <laughs> Never mind. Well, actually, uh, I'm into health. I'm really into health and fitness. So I, I stopped drinking alcohol, just like George W. Bush when I turned 40. Um, I decided oh, okay. it just wasn't. Well, I, I lift, I've lifted weights my whole life, and I just decided it didn't fit in with the lifestyle that I wanted. So I don't drink. Okay, well, that's fine. Now, uh, I, I'm interested in one thing. Rick. Uh, was it, uh, where was the chicken? Where was the egg? Did you go out and seek when you when you've got your funding, you got it set up? Did you go out and seek the big talent names first, the, the top comic strips and, and columnists and so forth, or did you line up the print venues and use them to attract the top clients? No, I, it was the the latter. I I was close to a lot of. I had run the Los Angeles Times Syndicate, and then Rupert Murdoch's uh-huh. News America Syndicate, and I got very close to these co- syndicated columnists and cartoonists, and. Right. Um, they had all been, for the most part, had their contracts were such that the syndication companies were allowed to run roughshod over the talent. And mm-hmm. I felt this was inherently unfair that uh, historically the syndication companies owned the comic strips, the name, the character, the likenesses. Um, right. And I, I thought, I thought, you know, the cartoonists should should be able to own their own creation. So we were the major syndicate that allowed that. And we were really attacked viciously and threatened with lawsuits and all this sort of thing. And the New York times wrote a story in 1987 calling Mm -hmm. me a superhero for cartoonists. Uh, I don't know about that, but we, we tried our best and here we are however many years later and uh, all the major syndicates now grant ownership rights to the cartoonists. So that was a major selling point. And so we started. Well, uh, yeah, just account. let me just halt that a minute because this was something that hadn't been. Uh, it goes back to King, you know, Will Randolph Hearst, King uh, Syndicate, and so forth. You said that they should own what they made, which meant actually, because I, I speak as an old freelancer, that you could then waltz it around to somewhere else on your own. Uh, and uh, and this really, really got the other syndicates just just uh, ready ready to take you down, right? Absolutely, because their cartoonists were saying, how come I don't? Why do you own it? I created it. Yeah, sure. That was a big deal at the time. But it, yeah. but it passed. I mean, they all, all those syndication companies, they're smart businessmen, and they uh, they do it our way now. So it's good. So we now, definitely Jack, just left the wanna, industry. Yeah, Jack, I just want to uh, get, get your take on this. You, here you are, you're uh, a young boy, not not grown up, but you're, you're – you're young. You see that your dad is is fighting through this. What was your thought about all of this? Watching your dad form this business, fight his way through it. What were you thinking at the time? So in 1987, when my dad started his company, I was five. So <laughs> you, right. uh, you have no, no, no. But you have kind of two two realities or two memories. The first one is sort of non-existent. I mean, memories up to five. Uh, all, all I, there's not really sort of a definitive memory, but after that, I remember a 
guy who was stressed, who was this swashbuckling entrepreneur who uh, was going to do everything he could to succeed. And it's interesting because I, I look at it from a kid growing up and w- the way that I saw success was our houses. So when my dad started his company, we rented a two bedroom apartment um, and uh-huh. sort of slowly worked our way up from house to house. So by the time I'm in eighth grade and my dad's picking me up in a Lexus, uh, I, I have an understanding and he has freedom within his schedule. I have an understanding. Okay. He's, he's, he's got something here. So this entrepreneurial path, there is kind of a, a carrot at the end of the rainbow. Okay. That's, I, I'm glad that, that, that there's a lure into family business. If, if I've ever heard one, if you've just joined us, you are listening to the art of the CEO, which every Tuesday at 2 PM Eastern time glides blissfully across the Zoom-clogged area avenues of mysterious cyberspace, where you may listen and download to this and all our episodes by visiting theartofthecEO.com. That's theartofthecEO.com. That's a website. We're on several stations, but to hear all the episodes, do turn into the website. Now, Rick, uh, you have dealt with, uh, in your time, you've had uh, everyone from the top columnists, the top advice columnists, you've had Ann Landers and, oh, so many people, and the top comics uh, and comic strip writers. Can you, uh, could you just, for, for the fun of it, uh, we want to dredge up a war story here. Could you sh- recall one client who was particularly uh, irascible, tough, tough, to, tough to land and tough to deal with? Well, I'll tell you, I think the, the most interesting was the Vatican. Uh, it was every really? syndicator's dream. It was every syndicator's dream to have a column by the Pope. And well, yes, 19- I, I would say so. Did, did you have to be blessed but, first? Yeah. So in 1985, uh, mm-hmm. we were approached by a literary agency in New York that said they had the rights to a papal column. And they had done some books by the Pope, Pope John Paul II. And um, right. we sent some, I was working for News America Syndicate, Rupert Murdoch Syndicate, and we sent uh, somebody over to the Vatican who had a contract and uh, signed by the cardinal who was in charge of the Vatican Library. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, we, as you can imagine, this sold very well. I mean, especially like in Latin America. I think we had over, you know, just an unbelievable, every paper in, in Latin America bought this column. And, and throughout Europe and throughout the United States. It must have burned and, candles to you in St. Patty's, but go ahead. Right. So then we had the first column. And uh-huh. um, a paper in Madrid, ABC, it was called, they put a, a photograph of the Pope signing something, signing some document. And they had a a sort of a sensationalist headline saying, you know, Pope John Paul II exclusively writes for ABC, you know, and and the Vatican, the the spokesman for the for the papal for the pope uh, was from that from Madrid. And he just couldn't he freaked out. And so he. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it. I can see that. Oh, uh, gosh. They have no right, and they blamed Rupert Murdoch, who knew nothing about this. So Rupert called me from London and said, oh, what in bloody God. hell are you doing? My wife is Catholic. My kids are Catholic. What are you doing? You know, I said, whoa, I don't know. So I got on a plane, <laughs> and, and I remember I got to my office in Irvine, California at that time. And, uh, yeah. Uh, 
I walked in and I had 135 messages or or more, you know, and, and right on the phone was a uh, somebody from Greek from Greece from Athens wanting you know an interview on the radio. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, I I got on a fl- plane, flew all night to New York, uh, met with. It turned out the Vatican, uh, the head of communications, was in Philadelphia visiting his mother in a nursing home. Uh, Archbishop John Foley, who became a cardinal. And so I went down with uh, Slade Metcalf, an attorney, a First Amendment attorney for Murdoch, plus uh, Joe Hanley, who was one of our representatives. And we met with Cardinal uh, Foley. And I said, look, if you don't want this column, we will not do it. We will not syndicate it. But we thought you wanted it. And we had a signed contract. And he said, well, let's do this. Let's do selected observations of Pope John Paul II. He had a, there was a priest with Laservatory Romano, the Vatican newspaper, who was an expert on this. And so he produced this 700-word column every week called Selected Observations. Right. So we, you know, the New York Times, I've got it framed on, the, on my office wall. And uh, one day, I think it was... Uh, in 1985 saying Vatican condemns the papal column. And then two days later, Vatican uh, <laughs> approves papal column. So that was quite an experience. And then a month later, my wife and I flew over to the Vatican and I did, we did have an audience with the Pope and I was very excited because I was brought up Catholic. I'm still Catholic. And, uh, but that was, that was quite an experience. <laughs> a column by the Pope. Absolutely. So, and you know, it's funny. It, you do something with the intentions, and just as you describe it to me, I can just see somebody reading that and yep. in the Vatican yep. and saying, holy bejesus, uh, if you'll forgive yep, the yep, pun. Yep. Yep. Uh, exactly. It, it, it is something, and it, it uh, teaches us to be a little more careful when we, uh, when we lay our claims out. <laughs> Well, I didn't realize that how how labyrinthine or whatever the word is, how bureaucratic the Vatican is, where one cardinal could sign something and then another cardinal could disavow it. And I didn't realize that's how it worked. So we had to... It was a learning uh, experience. sounds a lot like but, Washington, but the, I think the term is yeah. Byzantine, truly. Anyway, um, yeah, or, or maybe exactly. romantic, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Rick, now, uh, at this dramatic juncture, you have eased back a bit from the daily fire. Wait, wait, wait. Of, I'm sorry. Running. I'm sorry. Just one. Wait, just one point I sure, want to make. Sure. That what? column was a, the selected observations column turned into a raging success, and we were able really? to really grand. Uh, I'm glad I to hear sending, that. And I, uh, it, we 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 sent Mother Teresa. The the Vatican didn't want royalties, so I had to figure out what to do with them. So we sent them to Mother Teresa, and she hand typed a single space letter to me, and you know which I passed on to Rupert Murdoch because he owned the the company. So sure. it all worked out for the best. Oh my gosh! Well, it goes to show that good intentions will indeed come through. At uh, wonderful, I, actually, at, at this, uh, I did want to ask you one thing. There's a lot of people out, out there we have for, what, uh, who are listening to this show. A, a scientist who's got a, an invention, he wants to hold up a light. A businessman with a good idea. A uh, a, a global traveler. They all want to approach the media. You do this all the time. So I'm just going to ask you, could you give the uh, average person trying to get his message through to the media one or two tips about how to approach, well, best to approach the media when you have a message? I think Jack is the best one to answer this because it, everything has changed so much in 2021 
that I, I'm age 70 and I'm not, I, you know, I could tell you how, you how you should do it 35 years ago, but this is, that's like, you know, okay, Jack, at a take it away. Buggy versus an automobile. <laughs> okay. Jack, think, take I, it away. I, right. I, I think that the misconception is that you are trying to sell people on something. And I think that consumers right. and people are very smart and very intelligent and can see through that. So I would encourage people to be as authentic as possible in terms of this is who we are and this is who we're not. Um, and uh, the second part of that is to figure out what value you are creating for the consumer, what value you're creating for the person. So um, your strategy should not be, hey, we're here also. It should be we are different and here's why and here's why you should care. Um, so if, if you're authentic and you focus on the differentiating factor for your business, um, I think that uh, the, the media will be interested in it. Also, there's been a shift to personal stories, personal narratives. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot more about founders. People like to right. see founders on commercials. People like to associate uh, – consumers like to associate people with products right. much more so right. than in the past. So I would say if you could craft a narrative, craft some sort of story that is authentic, that generates value for the person on the other end, uh, good things will happen. All right. Thank you. Excellent idea. And that is – and by the way, it's early in the show, but Jack has given us a quill pen moment, and by that I mean a timeless truth of business. So I hope you will all dip your pens in the inkwell and write down uh, – when you are considering presenting anything, what is the value to the client? So many people from CEOs right on down to individual uh, writers and, and uh, presenters don't think about the value proposition. So thanks for bringing that up, Rick. Uh, Jack, forgive me. Uh, now, Rick, uh, you, you've kind of eased back a bit uh, from the – daily fires of, of running creators, you've uh, found time to, at this point, pick up something that you hinted at to, uh, to share the gospel of one of your, your great passions in your new book, The Magic of Whist Lifting Weights. Now, this is, I must admit, uh, confess, this is a project, uh, passion I've shared for a long time myself, but weights have been a lot more for exercise than you. Uh, could you give us just a, a, a little quick, uh, brief sketch of what lifting has brought to you, and what is the message you want to pass on? Well, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. When, when I was a, a little kid, like 12 years old, I saw a muscle magazine, and uh -huh. I was just so determined to build big muscles, and I, and I lifted weights. Uh, oh, yes. You know, as a, as a I know the teenager. feeling. Go ahead. Yes, yes. And then, you know, I, I got involved in other activities, went away to college, uh, worked as a reporter and an editor for United Press International in Baltimore. And I remember getting a press release saying that this fellow Arnold Schwarzenegger had just written his uh, autobiography of bodybuilding and uh, where they were trying to promote it. So I called Simon and Schuster and said, you know, I'm interested in this subject. If this fellow ever comes to Baltimore, I'd be happy to interview him and uh, write a story about him. And well, they got back to me pretty quickly, and he, we had breakfast. Uh, he was 30 years old. I was 27. He was just starting uh -huh. to become famous at that time. And but he really inspired me, you know. And so uh, 
I then um, was hired by the Los Angeles Times. And when we moved to Los Angeles, my wife and I got a small apartment near World Gym in Santa Monica because I liked the idea of working out there. And so in the book, I tell the story about how I did become a bodybuilder, uh, never full time, not not like Arnold, but just as as a hobby. To just like I would see other CEOs running marathons, trying to up their time, in the same way I tried to improve my physique through bodybuilding. Well, what I've discovered as I got into my 40s, 50s, 60s, and now 70s is that if you lift light weights with good form, you, it's just an amazing, it's almost like the fountain of youth. It, it, just, it certainly gives you the foundation for energy for your golden years. And so, I mean, I'm. I, I think that. you're so right there. Uh, quite yeah. frankly, I, I just wanted to mention that I have in the gym that I go to. I think one of the great improvements I have seen. I watch the trainers come in, bringing people of all ages, people in their 80s, even 90s, and all of them. They are giving some form of of weight training to their overall workout, and I think it's wonderful. And I think when you talk about the fountain of youth, you're not kidding, Rick. Where can we get a copy of the Magic of Lifting Weights? Well, I, I think that you go to Creators Publishing, and you'll see we, we have links to the Amazon, uh, Apple Books, Google Books, and uh, Nook, uh, which is Barnes & Noble Digital Books. Right. It's available as a paperback and an ebook. And if anybody's listening who's a personal trainer, the one thing I say to all and all the readers is be sure to get a personal trainer. I really believe in that. Um, if you haven't lifted weights in a long time or you're just starting out, the, the, you will uh, get rewards for hiring a personal trainer. In my case, I hired a personal trainer. His name was Franco Colombo, and it made all the difference. I, t- I explain all that in, in the book. I'm glad you do because and really it, it is so that, uh, that just that you coach everything else. A good CEO has a presentation coach. You should get a trainer on that. And if you if you really need someone to tell you all the things you're doing wrong, you can of course, like I did, get married. Um, now, <laughs> wait. I want to I want to make one other point about lifting weights or exercise, which is this: right. it is not something you can buy. It's not something you can delegate. You could be the richest person in the world if you're I don't know uh, the Tesla guy or. Uh, Bezos or whoever, uh, Warren Buffett, you cannot pay somebody to do reps for you. If you can be the most powerful person, whether you're Obama or Trump or Biden, you can't delegate. You can't set up a commission to do do the reps for you. But what this means is that everybody listening is on equal footing with the richest people in the world and the most powerful people in the world. And it's up to you to do the training just like it's up to them. So that's a great opportunity. And, and I think, I think you're right, and I, I would add to that that by, by weightlifting or any form of exercise that you take up, there is another power that you will find increase beyond the musculature. So yes. at this point, Rick wait, and Jack Newcomb will continue one, sharing wait, their inventive Bart, tactics. Bart, for, I, can't help, I can't help. Bart, I've got to say one other point, though, that's really important. What, what you got? It is the only activity that we do that is guaranteed to give us positive results. If you start a business, if you run for political office, there's no guarantee, or if you go to a corporation, there's no guarantee you're going to get promoted or you're going to succeed. But if you start exercising and eating healthy foods, there's an absolute guarantee 
that you will get that is result. Thoroughly put, and absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up because we all need to see something at which we can succeed. And Rick and Jack are going to continue telling us about uh, the world of media and publishing and, and uh, syndicating right after you and I take a brief uh, sorbet from today's Feast of Wisdom as we offer you some utensils for today's feast. And the first utensil, as I always do, allow me to remind each of you hearing my voice that the good Lord has gifted you with the, <clears throat> excuse me, with the title of Chief Executive Officer of Yourself. And since that really is the most important position you'll ever hold in your career, allow me to ask, will this be the day that you scrutinize all that advice you've gathered to make your decisions and weigh it on the scales only of practical merit and how it will best serve you? Or will you continue to let prestige and authority of the advisor tip the scales toward your decision? And a decision which, quite frankly, is more likely in their favor than yours. The choice, my friend, is truly yours. And as a second utensil, I can sense you yearning to steep your lips into a little laughter and taste a scriptural recitation from the 102... No, no, no. Let's make it from uh, the source book for business humor, in the words of my wife's husband. So I'm thumbing through this with immense alacrity here. Here, here we go. Oh, I love this one. Uh, if my business were as well organized as my desk, we'd hit Chapter 11 within a month. <laughs> so, hey, Jack, what do you think? Can an orderly corporation ever come out of a disorderly office? Uh, I, uh, I, yeah, I do, actually. I, I, I think uh, the, the whole, I mean, a lot of it is there, there's no kind of similar working out, but uh, the, the whole right way to do things, there are certain values and qualities and work ethic that you need, but stylistically, it's kind of up to you. Uh, some people like the cleanliness of uh, minimalism, and some people need the clutter to be creative, and there's no there's no right way to do it. It's really personal preference. All right, in I agree with you. I, uh, I I sort of go from from mess to clean and back and forth. At any rate, if you smirked a bit over this quip, we've got them literally by the books full. Just visit bartsbooks.com and pick up your copy of the 102 or the 101 best business quips or uh, the, the resource, the, your real resource for humor, in the words of my wife's husband. And you can eject yourself and your fellow dream chasers at work with an uplifting barrel of joviality and make yourself a little uh, more interesting to listen to. And as a third utensil, we sumptuously spoon to you the answer to last episode's business quotation. That is the name of the individual who said, Immaturity is the inability to use one's intelligence without the guidance from another. I guess the converse is true also, but uh, those words were spoken by none other than the very original thinker and brilliant philosopher Immanuel Kant. So congratulations to all you winners, and we had several, and stick with us, because later on in the show, blurting your way, comes yet another enriching quotation, and if you are among the learned souls who knows the author of that quote, simply scribble that sage's name down as you believe him or her to be an email at write-off to info at bartsbooks.com. That's I-N-F-O at bartsbooks.com. And if you are correct... Your knowledge it will earn you a mind and soul igniting gift, freshly disemboweled from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. Now, Rick and Jack Newcomb will continue to depict their handling of the media and their deft handling of family business right after I introduce to you the company by whose good graces we're here today. And that firm is Prometheus Publishing, 
who invites you to take good scrutiny of their pocket or volume. So that's how they do it. Tactics of Business Masters. And I, I got to say, this is one of my favorite book projects, primarily because of the readership. This, we deliberately designed this book for those business folks uh, whom we turn the energized elite. And, and you know who you are. You're that individual who seeks a fulfilling, satisfying career enough to push your arms up from the swivel chair and grasp some better tool and apply it to your own business. And you're, you're, you're far too bright for, and, uh, and busy for some seven-step uh, seven success template or whatever. So instead, so that's how they do it, lays out uh, a smorgasbord of tactics that have brought benefit for a worldwide array of business masters and they, they range from everything from leadership strategies from Alexander the Great right up to uh, Google CEO Eric Schmidt, ways to uh, prove your value in the workplace. And in there is the absolute best darn marketing strategy I or anyone in Fortune 500 has ever heard of. I'll tell you that. So pick up your copy of So That's How They Do It, and you, uh, you will find that it brings you uh, a little bit of improvement in the pages and sparks your mind to make even further. So uh, pick up your copy at bartsbooks.com. Carpe diem, my friend. You are indeed worth it. And now let us turn back to uh, Rick and Jack Newcomb, father and son team of guided creators uh, for its 33-year rise to media prominence. Jack, now turning to you, uh, as with your at the helm, you had a major financial experience, I believe, with Goldman Sachs, and you graduated from uh, Stanford University with an MBA in, in your pocket, and the whole world is pr uh, pursuing your business potential. And you look over the possibilities, and in the end, around 2009, you throw your talents into your dad's business. What tipped the scales in favor of that choice for you? So I had worked at a big company. So I always knew that I wanted to do the reverse, work at something smaller, do something more entrepreneurial. I had worked in finance, specifically in investing, which was right. intellectually stimulating. However, I felt like I didn't have any skin in the game in terms of building a product. So mm -hmm. when I went through business school, I knew I wanted to focus on media, technology, entrepreneurship. And that's what I did. And when I got out, as I was looking at all the different options, um, ultimately what drew me to creators was I was able to have general management responsibilities. So I thought I could lead a team, and this was the opportunity to do that. And the second thing was to do something creative, do something in a creative field. I had worked in finance before. Finance is not a creative field if you're doing it the right way. Obviously, you can get creative with finances, and uh, we know what yes. happens there. Um, I, I know what happens. Uh, Those orange jumpsuits are so tight-fitting. Right, exactly. And then to some degree, it being a family business had positives and negatives. The, the negatives I'm were sure. I'm, a, I'm a proud person, and I didn't want to have a stigma of being the boss's son or right. like I hadn't proven myself and was only there because of my genetics. I'm not saying that um, there's not truth to that, but it was definitely a hurdle that I was going to have to 
overcome and, and a pill I was going to have to swallow. Um, on the flip side, there is something cool about working uh, at a family business. You feel like you are working for something that is bigger than yourself. Uh, nobody cares about the company. Nobody cares about the business more than the family. Um, and, and it has nothing to do with the dollars and cents and everything to do with this is our flag. This is our mark on the world, and we want to keep this thing going just because. It, it sort of gives you reason to live as opposed to, and I think back to um, a strategy professor who said most, he was essentially encouraging all of us to take risks to be more entrepreneurial. And he said, uh-huh. he said a lot of MBAs are actually risk averse. And what you do is you get a brand like Stanford and then you go to another brand and then another brand and another brand and then you die. Uh-huh. And then what do you have on your tombstone? You have a bunch of brands. And he said, you're no, <laughs> you're, you're, you're just as smart as all the people in all the cases we've ever read. Go out and do something. So I, I kind of had that as uh, motivation to go do this thing that I, that I thought I could do. Plus, it was a very huge challenge joining a mm-hmm. newspaper syndicate in 2009 where the global financial crisis had, crisis had just happened, the first, you know, the, the, the first one before this most recent one. Um, and the stock market was still smoldering. Lehman Brothers. Right, absolutely. Was, I mean, that was is, a big crash. Is, right. And there was so, something um, else. I, I, and, go ahead. Well, I wanted to bring up the point that as you take it, in addition to uh, the financial situation, which, uh, which was tough, you, you also came in sort of simultaneously or, or in, in the middle of something that was as the, the digital revolution, uh, print media was on a, a downward slide and everyone was saying, what's going to happen to newspapers? Meanwhile, digital is proliferating all over. This must have been, uh, and, and you saw the need for immense change, uh, and it, you were sort of perched on the knife edge uh, of this change. And so what was your assessment as you looked at your own company and saw this and and what plans did you think you had to start formulating? I wish I could tell you that I had plans um, or I had (laughs) an accurate assessment, but the reality was I didn't know and I still don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. I think that in 2009, the view of media was different than it is today. And, and, and newspapers, for whatever reason, people that are involved with newspapers uh, have a romantic, positive view of working at a newspaper. Um, yeah, I never worked true. at a newspaper. My, my dad worked at, uh, was, was the founding editor of his college newspaper. He was a beat reporter at UPI. I'm, I'm not a newspaper guy at all. Um, uh-huh. so when I got into this business, I could look at it, the, the positive is that I could look at it unemotionally. Um, what right. I didn't, what I didn't realize was a lot of people couldn't, and this isn't unique to newspapers. It's unique to, and it's, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, around any industry where people spend decades working to build something, which is understandable. So 
when I got there, my plan was to understand. I couldn't understand. I couldn't look externally and have any clue what was going on in the future of media or the economy. What I could do is look internally and make sure that we had the right people on the bus so that when tough times came, which they eventually did, and, and we were in the middle of it, we had people that bought into me as a leader, that bought into the type of culture that we were trying to create and understood uh, what, it, what it was going to take to be successful. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because it is, uh, first of all, you, you, it was a major, major change. Digital is a less top-down thing than print. You pointed out very insightfully that uh, the shift to digital is, is, it, uh, lacks the romance but, and platforms are more crowded, but, 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 it has, but there's so much going on in it. And so I'm, uh, I'm going to ask, cause I, how did you, you – you talked about the staff and that, that you needed to get the right people doing the right things. So how did you, uh, stepping in, I believe your first job, you were general manager, you, how did you coach up the team and get them to embrace the new methods and the new operations? So we, the first thing we did was we had to get rid of a lot of people. We had acquired a company the year before, right before the crash. Um, so the staff was uh, the staff was bloated considering everything we had done. And I actually uh, asked my dad, I said, hold off on getting rid of people until I get there so we can make this decision together, which we did. Um, and after that, it was about the people that we kept, um, promoting the people that were on board, uh, hiring new people that could see things the way I wanted um, them to see it, uh, specifically focusing on, instead of focusing on obstacles as things that uh, were going to impede our progress, sort of having an unemotional look at things, really focusing on mm-hmm. grit and having a growth mindset. So grit being ability to overcome adverse circumstances and a growth mindset, meaning skills are something that we can learn. Okay. We're just a group of smart, hardworking people that could adapt to whatever the media landscape throws at us. And if we look at things from that perspective, um, then we could, we could uh, make change. I will say the biggest strategy um, thing that I did was I, um, I uh, really focused on software and specifically um, uh, building software that would enable our employees and enable people to do their job better, uh, more efficiently, um, and would help our, help our clients. So um, it, it's kind of insider baseball, but they, we, we really focused on what software could we build that could replace people. Um, and and when, you, when you say that, it sounds heartless, but what it does is the people that are working the software and the people that are using the software um, learn new skills, and most importantly, our clients are able to get things that are uh, more accurate, more in line with whatever they need uh, from a formatting standpoint. So that was, that was a big strategy thing that uh, I kind of did mm-hmm. early on mm-hmm. that was successful and, and kind of went back to the well over and over again. Well, actually, I think it's, it, it sounds very much like uh, the Jack Welch theory of uh, take, 
get the get the right the best possible tools, the fewest possible people you can, and give those people every advantage. I think so. I uh, it's admirable. But uh, so you see these changes. And now, Rick, I want to get back to you briefly. You've sweated for this company for 22 years. It's 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 uh, probably almost as much your baby as Jack as Jack is, and. Uh, you know Jack's no fool. You see, there's the need for change, but uh, what was your response to the to the shifts that that uh, Jack was bringing in? Well, initially I was resistant. Um, I wanted to believe newspapers would survive forever and prosper forever, uh, but I came to my senses and I learned. I learned from Jack. Like, you know, he would use expressions like, "Well, we have to set up this employee uh, to succeed," and that never occurred to me. I always was of the sink or swim you know, school of management where you right, throw right. them in the deep end. And if the, the ones who get back who can swim are the ones you keep and promote and the ones who don't, you know, but I, I like Jack's uh, management style much better than my own. I mean, we, we did uh, seek outside consulting help and the consultants all said, Rick, you have to back off. Uh, Jack is absolutely brilliant. He's, he's right. And you're old school. And, I, and you know, I, I, at some point said they're right. And yes, and Jack is right. Yeah. And so I have um, – and I, and I love it. I love my life right now. I do, well, I don't like the, the shutdown with COVID-19, but I can't wait to get vaccinated and get back on airplanes and go see grandchildren right. on the East Coast and be able to hug uh, little Warren, oh, Jack's sh- son, on the West Coast and all that. But otherwise, you know, I, Actually, I, I, I'm very, I, I'm I very, thank very you, by the way, I want to thank that. you for your real honesty, because this, this does open up. Of course, you're resistant. And, and yet you you brought in other people. You took uh, you looked at, again, the merit of of the ideas and rather than uh, from whom they were coming. And uh, my wife's husband always keeps saying the key to wisdom is never consider the source. And uh, so I, I thank you for that. And now. Well, there Jack, is there is a um, famous wait, wait wait there is a famous D. H. Lawrence quote: "Trust the tale, not the teller." And that what he was saying is, <laughs> have you ever you know you could read a book and you love the book, and then you meet the author and you think, oh, what a jerk. And then it's kind of, you get soured on the book. Well, I I do want to say too that Jack has not only uh, brought in this a lot of bright people and an encouraging management style, but we still have I would say a, at least a third of our workforce has been with us for more than 25 years each. So we have a lot that of veterans who rose to the occasion, right there, too. Does indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Jack, so he one was, of, uh, yeah. I was just going to say, Jack, the, the, there's uh, uh, another major shift, of course, that came with your clients. You're no longer offering the old syndication formats. In fact, you've got rid of the term syndication, that you know, where, where the client would get a steady income and go at this. Uh would it be fair to say, Jack, that what you're now offering uh, the, the clients is increased exposure, greatly increased exposure, with the potential for parlaying that into an income and audience on its own? Is that, was that, would that be fair, a good way to say it? So when you say clients, you're referring to the talent, correct, like writers and artists? Yes, yeah, so the, 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 uh, the, the writers of the columns and the comic strips and so right. forth. Right, right. Um, so I just want to clarify that because we are, you know, our clients are also the, the buyers. Um, they are so, indeed, right. uh, so, so it, it's complicated because I, I would say the first thing is we, we didn't do anything. We're not, we're not 
we are not the cause of the decline of the newspaper industry. We're just looking at the chessboard and, and, and seeing what is going on and sort of acting accordingly. So if you are a very good writer, I'm not going to lie to you and say you're going to retire off of a newspaper uh, column in 2021. Um, right. So you always got to think about, okay, the next generation, what are they going to be doing? If, if I am the next generation great writer, what platform should uh-huh. I be going to? How, how are people going to read um, the words that I want to write? Um, and, and, and that's constantly changing. So uh, what, what we do is focus on our core competencies of finding really talented writers and trying to share them with the world. Um, right now, the platforms that we share them with are, yes, newspapers, websites, digital media platforms, as well as um, our largest growing um, revenue stream has been uh, publishing. Uh, we've tried right. other other um, avenues, whether it's podcasting or creating content verticals around certain websites, uh, and, and, and we do have do not have a core competency in that, so it has not uh, been successful so far. It's definitely something that we're monitoring, monitoring, but. Um, I look at culture, what we've done well, what we can do in the future, and that's really focused on um, finding good writers and um, distributing them in whatever the new medium is. Okay. I thank you very much. I, I have I have about 18 more questions I want to go through, but unless we're running running right to the end. And so, so Jack, uh, just let me uh, ask you, if I am an established writer of a column or comic strip or I hold or if I hold some platform that wants that pinnacle level of talent that uh, creators offers, how do I get in touch with you and creators to see if there might be a fit for your services? Uh, go to creators.com. You can uh, send an email to info at creators.com and it will mm-hmm. go the right direction. And and on our okay. homepage we have we have submission guidelines for columns, comic strips, and book publishing. Excellent. Okay. I thank you very much. And oh Jack and Rick, this is this has been just, just fabulous to have you on. And uh I admire so much what you do and the way you two have worked together and and seen it through uh, amazingly troubled waters and di- and in a dynamic media environment. So my congratulations to you both, and uh, I hope we'll be able to bring you back sometime and find out how things are going on. Well, thank you very much. We really enjoyed it. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. You have have a great great show. Great fun for for us all, and I've learned a lot. So as we round out today's feast, I am Bart Jackson, your curator of business wisdom, leaving you with today's business quotation, and that is, If you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people he gives it to. (laughs) As a hint, uh, the author of this was a a 20th century literary giant and journalist with a razor-witted tongue and uh, was the member of Manhattan's famous Algonquin Roundtable. And remember, if you know the author of this quote, simply scribble that sage's name down as you believe it to be, send it right off to info at bartsbooks.com to win an absolutely career-igniting gift from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And as a parting shot, 
In the words of my wise husband, no successful entrepreneur launches her business with a mission of crushing the hateful competition. Instead, she gets all eager-eyed and excited about what she wants to create and unleash upon the unsuspecting worlds. And to you, who have been gleefully sharing our feast, I hope you've enjoyed The Art of the CEO as much as Jack and Rick and I have enjoyed bringing it to you. And remember, you may download this and all our shows by visiting theartoftheceo.com. And that's theartoftheceo.com. And finally to you, who have honored us with your time, may I say as always, it has been a privilege. And I thank you.